This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. For more, visit theannexpodcast.com. I want to talk about something I read on the ginormously famous econ blog, Marginal Revolution, where Alex Tabarak, an econ professor at GMU, uh, posted about this famous question of Soviet growth in American textbooks. So famously, through like umpteen million editions of his very influential econ textbook, Paul Samuelson had this graph showing that because Soviet GDP was at, well, at the time they called it GNP, Soviet GNP was at a lower level than US GNP, but was growing at a higher level, or at least they had more um, investment uh, in basically capital investment. Mathematically, there had to be a point sometime around the early 90s where Soviet GNP would outpace uh, American GNP. I don't know if this is what Khrushchev had in mind, like if he was specifically thinking of Samuelson when he said, we will bury you. Did not refer to military conquest. It actually meant that the Soviet economy would outpace the American economy. But it's the same basic idea, right? This idea that the Soviet economy, because it invested more in capital inputs, would have uh, would outpace the American economy. And this, of course, was a hilariously bad prediction because far from outpacing the American economy circa 1990, that's exactly when the Soviet empire collapsed. What's interesting about this mm. is Tabarrok points out that there, there were other textbooks that made the same mistake, but there was an important exception, a textbook called Tarsius and Heilbronner that got it right, where they pointed out that this is simply not the case, right? That the Soviet economy is not growing faster than the American economy. Tabarrok points out that far from it being that Tarshish and Heilbronner were members of the John Birch Society or something like that, and just thought that, you know, communism was doomed to fail, or like, you know, they got all their ideas from Frederick Hayek, that quite to the contrary, they were actually to the left of Samuelson. Um, so the, the reason that they had a more dismal and more accurate estimate of Soviet economic growth than Samuelson wasn't because they were less sympathetic to the Soviet empire. It was because of a different methodology that they were basically more qualitative, that Samuelson very famously, he, he's the reason that econ mm -hmm. articles all have calculus. He was the guy who figured that econ should be calculus, mm -hmm. and then if you have time at the end, you'll actually have some data. <laughs> Tarshish and Heilbronner were more traditional economists who had you know, a little bit more qualitative and empirical, and they just looked at, you know, they had more of a fuzzy notion. They were much more like the kind of institutionalists that uh, the old institutionalists that like Max Weber came out of, where he actually came out of like a historical mm -hmm. institutionalist school of uh, economics. So one question that I that I had because uh -huh. I didn't read the, I didn't read the article because this kind of reminds me of debates on school funding and whether or not mm -hmm. school uh, money matters, right? Of course, money matters. If money didn't didn't matter, if investing in schools didn't matter, then you wouldn't have all of these people with money or even some people without money taking out loans to put their kids in private school where spending per pupil is so much higher than spending per pupil in public schools. It's not whether money matters, it's how money matters, right? So is it that just the mere fact that the Soviets were investing more didn't matter because they weren't investing wisely. Actually, a good fit with the education example. The big assumption that Samuelson was relying on was that you're allocating your capital investments well. So if you believe the theory, 
you know, and you invest capital inputs, it implies a certain level of economic growth. But the problem is, is that precisely because of the socialist calculation problem, the Soviet Union was not investing their capital inputs wisely. They were, you know, devoting quite a bit to capital inputs, but they were spending it on crap because they had central planning. And, you know, central planning has the information problem where it's very hard to figure out what you should be investing in. And so they weren't, they weren't on the margin or whatever it's called, the frontier, whatever it's called, of TFP. What spoke to you about this uh, story? What spoke to me about it was the idea that it's it's not about the politics of the people who are making these decisions. It's much more about their methodological assumptions. I mean, we had Kieran on a couple of weeks ago, and I was enthusiastic about that. And I generally agree with his uh, arguments about nuance, right, that we should be having more parsimonious model. And in the background, as we record this, I have a computer simulation running. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so if the sound quality goes down, it's because all my computing cycles are being taken up by that. So, right. you know, I'm obviously sympathetic to you start <laughs> with a somewhat unrealistic, but very parsimonious model and you see what emerges from it. But, you know, and I think Kieran would agree with this. You could take it too far and you can have a very parsimonious model with very strong assumptions. And it ends up coming up with ridiculous conclusions like the Soviet Union will outpace the American economy within 30 years from the time you're making the prediction. Because like when I hear that story, I just hear it's like a classic mental glitch of just over extrapolating what's happening. You know, the Soviets did enjoy a lot of growth and and it was quality growth in a sense. Well, that's true. I mean, they went from a feudalism economy to an industrial economy, basically, Basically. from World War One to World War Two. And the path, the path that they went through is, you know, it's it's a pretty well known path where you can raise living standards through raw industrialization up to some point. Well, maybe in the long run. In the short run, it wasn't too fun for the people whose grain was being appropriated. For sure. So that they could sell it to buy factory equipment. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what happened in a lot of countries. But the, I don't know if it's a left versus right thing as much as it's just there is a, a ceiling that you can, uh, you know, of, of, of the amount of development that you can enjoy with sort of just brute industrialization. Well, it's certainly easier to do catch up growth through that sort of thing, right? But once you get closer to kind of the technological frontier that other countries are uh, on. It's much harder to do that sort of thing with central planning. But I, I don't know. I mean, aside from the issue of like Soviet calculation versus the knowledge problem versus all that, I just think there's this interesting thing of like parsimony is great. And I think sociology undervalues parsimony. But I think econ, especially in the high Samuelson era, overvalued it. This issue of overforecasting Soviet growth illustrates what can go wrong when you just pay attention to the assumptions of very simple models and you don't pay attention to the basic you know facts that are apparent to the senses that you know the Soviet Union had a terrible economy with a lot of malinvestment of capital Although those are old theories, like I wouldn't, you know, the economists who I know and interact with, the empirical ones, I mean, they're, I don't want to say nuanced now, because that seems like an epithet in yeah. uh, in our circles. Yeah. But like, they're quite nuanced about, you know, the labor economists or the development economists I know, they wouldn't make those mistakes. Well, this is macro. Yeah. Labor is much more empirical of a field and much closer to sociology. But macro has always had this problem in part because there's a shortage of data, right? We only have one world. And we only have a few dozen well-documented countries. Yeah. We have a lot of well-documented countries. What we don't have is we don't have a long amount of history. Well, we have a lot, but define, define a lot, right? I mean, compared to the American Community Survey, it's nothing. 30 countries in the OECD, and you have 200-something in the United Nations. But you compare that to the GSS, which has 2,000 people per wave, 
and the American Community Survey, which has a couple hundred thousand per wave. I mean, if you look at the data that labor economists are using, it's orders of magnitude more cases, and they're much more plausibly independent of each other than countries are the macro economists use. I disagree. So I would say from if you go to the world development indicators from 1960 on, there's a good amount of data covering North America, Europe, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Latin America. What you, uh-huh. you know, and, and it's 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 quite a bit. The problem is, is that I found in my working with this data, uh, the history isn't long in the sense that you got the 60s, the you know, if you look, there's maybe like three or four major sort of eras in the economy mm-hmm. and not much and, and and less variety within those. So you have like maybe 50 years of data. And when you talk about richer data, like extra variables, maybe it's only since the mid 90s. Mm-hmm. The world's been neoliberal for a lot of that time, right? Basically since uh, the late 70s. Yeah, basically. So, I mean, and the bulk of our data is there. So we have a lot of country years. Mm-hmm. What we don't have is we don't have a lot of distinct historical context where we can contemplate the types of ideas that we often wrestle with when we're thinking about economic policy, right? But even, even with the country years, the countries aren't independent, right? I mean, if the United yeah. States has a severe economic recession, you can bet your ass that's going to have problems for Canada and Mexico because they're huge trading partners with the United States. That That's true. And that's what I mean when I say like, there's not a lot of history. I mean, there's very little data from a period when the world wasn't centered on the United States. Well, there's basically none. I mean, yeah. the uh, even American data basically starts just before the Great Depression, because all that data only was collected with the New Deal. There's very few rich data sets that go before World War II. There are some but there's limits on what you can discern from them. Well, yeah, you know, we need we need a few more centuries, I guess, of information, I think. Well, and ideally, we wouldn't just have a few more centuries, <laughs> but we'd also have data on the Martian economy and, you know, data yeah. on the economy <laughs> Alpha Centauri, so that, you know, we have data where you don't have this issue that the cases are all highly correlated with each other because right. a lot of economic trends are global, especially when commodities are traded globally, capital flows globally, all those sorts of You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. For more information, visit theannexpodcast.com. Music is by Lena Orsa. Our production team included Anika Chowdhury and Lisseth Moreno. On behalf of the Annex team, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.